0: This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.
1: Ischemic heart disease is a condition in which the arteries of the heart are gradually blocked through atherosclerotic disease. And this can lead to long-term complications such as heart attacks, uh, and also something called angina, which just means that someone experiences uh, chest pain regularly, particularly when when exercising. but it can also cause other things such as heart
2: failure. and more and more we're realizing that the process of atherosclerosis or, how our body starts to lay the foundations of atherosclerosis occurs in the first two decades of life, often in teenage years.
0: You look at the uh, risk factors for cardiovascular disease and Alzheimer's, huge overlap. Diabetes is the major one. One of the few genetic risk factors is ApoE4, which is both involved in atherosclerosis and in Alzheimer's.
3: This is Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds, the podcast that's open-minded enough to take in all sides of a clinical story. You'll hear from researchers, doctors, naturopaths, nutritionists, and patients. We look at common clinical presentations through a different lens. It's open, frank, and sometimes controversial. Nothing is off limits. Will it change the way you treat? We'll leave that up to you. In season two of Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds, we look at cardiometabolic health. We talk to experts in the field who will take you into their clinics and share their experience. I'm Tony Chambers, and this is Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds. In this episode of Between Clinical Minds, we discuss ischemic heart disease with integrative cardiologist Dr. Jason Kaplan and specialist GP Dr. Sandeep Gupta, and related to that, Dr. Michael Osiki discusses dementia. Dr. Sandeep Gupta is an integrative GP with a special interest in cardiometabolic conditions.
1: Ischemic heart disease is a condition in which the arteries of the heart are gradually blocked through atherosclerotic disease and this can lead to long-term complications such as heart attacks, uh, and also something called angina, which just means that someone experiences uh, chest pain regularly, particularly when when exercising. But it can also cause other things such as heart failure. And there is an incidence of, of uh, what we call arrhythmias, which is abnormal heart beats that can occur uh, in ischemic heart disease, particularly if one of the areas of the heart that's responsible for creating the electrical signal is affected. And there, unfortunately, is also a certain rate of sudden death that goes along with ischemic heart disease. So it is a very, very important condition and very deadly.
3: So atherosclerosis is the main cause. So can you just describe that process of atherosclerosis?
1: Atherosclerosis is the process of the arteries of the heart gradually becoming blocked. And in fact, it used to be, or originally the hypothesis was that the artery slowly just become more and more blocked through the buildup of cholesterol on and plaque on the arteries, and one develops angina if the blockage goes above a certain um, severity, and then if it goes to 100%, you get a heart attack. Now, it's actually now known that, that it, it's much more complicated than that, and it's, it's not really just a slow buildup of cholesterol, but it's to do with what we call endothelial dysfunction, which mm-hmm. means... It's to do with the inner layer of the arteries or the blood vessels of the heart becoming damaged. And so what happens is people who have heart attacks may not necessarily have very high level blockages. It can be that someone, for instance, only has a 10% blockage, but because there's a lot of inflammation in that particular lesion, it attracts clot to it as a repair mechanism and then that causes a heart attack. So it's not so much that it's just a gradual buildup of cholesterol through the arteries, but it's actually an inflammatory condition in which the endothelium or lining of the arteries is damaged and therefore cholesterol plaque and also clots are attracted, uh, which can cause various complications.
3: And can you discuss the traditionally thought driving factors behind the development of atherosclerosis?
1: There's four tradi- really common traditional ones, or let's say five, and they mm-hmm. are firstly high blood pressure or hypertension. So it's thought that if you have uh, high blood pressure throughout your life, then that creates a strain on the, uh, on the coronary arteries, which makes it much more likely to develop ischemic heart disease. Secondly, high cholesterol and, and particularly elevation of the LDL cholesterol is thought to be particularly harmful for the heart. We'll go into this a little bit further, but I, I'm just going to give you the traditional view. There's also another pattern, which is also thought to be important, which is where you've got a low HDL cholesterol and a high triglycerides. And that's, that's sometimes referred to as type 2 hypercholesterolemia. That's also thought to have a minor role. Now, thirdly, diabetes. Uh, So either type 1 or type 2 diabetes on an ongoing basis appears to damage the uh, arteries of the heart and make it much more likely to get coronary artery disease. Fourthly, a positive family history for coronary artery disease. So if you've Mm -hmm. got a first-degree relative, which means mother or father or a sibling who has had an infarct, is the fancy way of saying a heart attack, um, Mm -hmm. before the age of 60, uh, then that is considered to be a very strong risk factor. And and I guess that points to genetic factors. Mm -hmm. The number five was a past history of cigarette smoking. So I think that's quite undisputed if there's a, a – and, you know, we often measure that in, in terms of pack years. So let's say someone smoked one pack a day for 10 years, that's a 10-pack year history. And generally anywhere above ten ten 10-pack years is very significant in terms of increasing your risk.
3: Dr. Jason Kaplan is a specialist, adult cardiologist and physician with a special interest in integrative and preventative cardiology and says the process of atherosclerosis starts at a scarily young age.
2: More and more we're realising that the process of atherosclerosis or how our body starts to lay the foundations of atherosclerosis occurs in the first two decades of life. And often in teenage years, we've done autopsies on, on young men that were involved in the, in the Korean War and the Vietnam War, and we've shown fibro fatty plaque in their arteries. But you're right, it is a gradual buildup um, related to multiples of different risk factors. One of them is genetics and family history. Um, the other is certain genetic conditions of, of cholesterol where people are very high cholesterol, but long-standing high cholesterol. Other concerns such as diabetes, high blood pressure, poor dietary choices, lack of exercise. And more and more, we're realizing that inflammation Plays a part in atherosclerosis as well. So all of these factors in a, in one individual may then contribute to the development of atherosclerosis in someone's coronary arteries.
3: And what are your thoughts on? You know, we've heard like the risk factors or the driving factors that you just mentioned. One of those, I suppose, that you didn't mention was that we often hear is saturated fats driving atherosclerosis and ischemic heart disease. What are your thoughts on that?
2: The one that I didn't mention as well, uh, Tony, was the lack of physical exercise. it's very well shown people who do not a lot of physical exercise, you know, are also at risk. But saturated fats do do play a part. Saturated fats drive up serum LDLC and more atherogenic lipoproteins such as um, ApoB. And ApoB is a marker we're going to be seeing used more and more. And ApoB is a, is a sum of all the atherogenic lipoproteins In our bloodstream. Now, if we know that atherosclerosis has its origins very early early in life, in in the first few decades, and one of those risk factors is is higher LDL-C levels or or ApoB levels, then it would seem that the best thing that we can do is try and maintain low levels in the first few decades of our life and saturated fats drive up these, especially in certain susceptible individuals. The dietary patterns that have been shown to be most beneficial at preventing cardiovascular events, none of them have a high amount of saturated fats in in, in their diet, and they often replace them with polyunsaturated and monounsaturated fats.
3: What are your thoughts on cholesterol and LDL C, often termed bad cholesterol, what do you think about that term bad cholesterol? Is that the way that you kind of term it yourself when you're talking to patients?
2: Look, I often, I tend to not use the word bad cholesterol, but I like to think about the term um, more plaque-forming cholesterol. And we're actually getting a little bit better at defining you know, someone's risk by looking at their cholesterol profile. Um, so I don't just talk about LDL. That's why I think marker such as you know, APO-B is useful because it's the sum of all atherogenic lipoproteins. Um, and also more and more, we're looking at a new marker called lipoprotein little a. Lipoprotein little a is often elevated in people who have early atherosclerosis, early ischemic heart disease. And to, to summarise it, lipoprotein little a attaches itself to uh, certain lipoproteins and cholesterol particles and makes them more likely to deposit in the arterial wall. So it's not just about the LDL. Um, in some patients, what I will also do is I will do something called LDL subfractions where we can differentiate between the small dense LDL particles. These are often more likely to deposit in the arterial wall wall versus more of the light and fluffy LDL particles, which are less likely to deposit in in the arterial wall. And then we create a picture for the the person sitting in in front of us. It's often too simplistic just to attribute it to to one factor. Um, But what I do want to say is if you do have risk factors and if there is Early atherosclerosis in your, in your arteries, as measured by the testing such as a chlorine calcium score or an ultrasound of your carotid arteries. We do know that achieving a lower LDLC can help reverse that process and lead to a situation where no new plaque formation. Will be laid down we've shown that very elegantly in multiple both uh, primary and secondary prevention studies in fact we were able to show that if we bring the ldlc under 1.8 millimoles per litre we can perhaps even reverse the volume of plaques and this is detected on a on an amazing test where we can actually put an ultrasound in someone's coronary arteries and we can actually see the reduction in plant volume and this occurs when the ldl is under 1.8 the other really important thing i'd like to emphasize about you know LDL- ldlc is we know that you know populations around the world that have a lower ldlc do not have a clinically significant burden of atherosclerosis. And in 2017, published in The Lancet, there was a, a cross-sectional study done of the Chimani people, which are a hunter-gatherer people living at the edge of the Amazon in Bolivia. And they have the lowest rate of coronary atherosclerosis compared to anyone in the world. In fact, their arterial age is 28 years younger than when compared to the average person in, in Western society and they they do this by having a hunter-gatherer lifestyle mostly their diet is lower in saturated fats. Their average LDLC lies at around 2.335, and they definitely get lots of exercise a day. They're moving all day, and they have the lowest rate of atherosclerosis out of any population in the world.
3: That's very interesting. Just, um, I just wanna pull out a point that you were talking about before and just explore a little bit more about the coronary artery calcium score. So can you explain that a little bit more, please?
2: Right. So the coronary artery calcium score has been around around 20 25 years, but it is a simple non-invasive tool, um, and what what happens is people go to radiology practice and have a non-contrast CT scan of their heart, and it quantifies. The amount of long-term atherosclerosis that is, that is there in the coronary arteries, and that is depicted as calcium on the CT scanner. This is scored according to a standard algorithm that is used internationally and universally called the Agustin score, which is named after Arthur Agustin, who was a cardiologist in Florida. And then not only do we know what the score, if there's the presence of atherosclerosis, which is really important, the younger people are, but also we can compare you to other age and sex match cohorts and other national, other ethnic backgrounds, um, integrating that information from a study called the Multi-Ethnic Study of Atherosclerosis. And we also know by studying and following up people with elevated calcium scores, we have a very clear idea about what their risks are of developing clinically significant complications related to ischemic heart disease. And we know what interventions will work best in in some of these populations. So it is a simple non-invasive test that can be used in in men around the age of 40, uh, in women closer to the age of 50, have a marker of what is going, do you have the presence of atherosclerosis? Is it higher than expected for someone of your age? And then the next question is, well, if there is atherosclerosis there, then what can we do? To help prevent further plaque formation in your coronary arteries. And if there's not, it can be fairly reassuring for people that if your calcium score is zero, it means your risk of the subsequent cardiovascular events over the next five or seven years is, is low.
3: And what about for those people who might not have a coronary artery calcium score of zero?
2: So, look, the presence of, of any coronary calcium suggests that the the process of atherosclerosis has started. Um, And that is partly related to getting older, but it's partly related to risk factors and exposure to risk factors. And in particular, there's a wonderful... Piece of data that's come out from a one longitudinal study called the CARDIA study, C A R D I A, that's looked at the level, number of years of exposure to elevated LDLC. And it's shown that, in actual fact, the people who have a high exposure to LDLC in a younger time of their life will go on to develop coronary artery calcium earlier. But for people who do have an elevated coronary artery calcium, and the important number seems to be 100. Um, If you have a calcium score of 100, there's a 10 times increased relative risk of a cardiovascular event. And in these situations, it's important to think about what can we do to optimize cardiovascular risk factors. So which of the cardiovascular risk factors can we address? What are the residual risk factors that, that need addressing? Do we have to think about cholesterol-lowering therapy, and that may be with, you know, with medication or with lifestyle and diet? Do we need to treat blood pressure? Do we need to look at inflammation? Will you know? Will patients with calcium scores greater than 100 benefit from being on a standard treatment such as statins? We also know that. Coronary artery calcium scores that are very high, over 1,000, are very high risk. And these people need to be evaluated carefully for any disruption of blood supply and need fairly intense management of both lifestyle and dietary factors to keep them from having a cardiovascular event.
3: And just on one of the points that you mentioned then and earlier about inflammation, so you said that we're now kind of starting to understand the role that inflammation might play. Can you delve into that for us, please? So, about
2: ten years ago there was a trial that, that looked at using statin drugs in people with normal cholesterol levels but high levels of inflammation. and it showed a reduction in cardiovascular events. But inflammation, having an understanding about the biology of atherosclerosis, we know that around vulnerable plaques, and in, in atherosclerotic plaques in people's coronary arteries, that there are lots of inflammatory cells. And these inflammatory cells can cause maladaptive remodeling of, of a coronary atherosclerosis and put people at risk for having a myocardial infarction. There is a, a simple blood test that can be measured and it's called high-sensitivity CRP. Now, often that, that CRP is particularly elevated when someone has an acute bacterial infection and so if you have someone has a pneumonia or a urine tract infection that may be increased but in the absence of infection if your high sensitivity CRP is elevated it may mean that there are high levels of inflammation in your body and this can be due to a few different things maybe a non-cardiac condition such as autoimmune disease or allergy but if those are excluded then it may be a marker that something that is going on in terms of either lifestyle, diet, and exercise is causing an elevated CRP. And this is a potential therapeutic target. There was a trial published a few years ago that looked at people after having a heart attack who had elevated CRP levels after a heart attack and were treated with a fairly potent intravenous anti-inflammatory drug that modulates the immune system and it showed a significant reduction in subsequent heart attacks in that group that had a reduction in inflammation. Now, I think it's not possible to do that and it's ridiculously too expensive. So my approach as a preventative cardiologist is to recommend that people that do have a cardiovascular event or have elevated CRP look very closely at their lifestyle and say, what am I doing that is possibly inflammatory? What do I need to change in my diet? Do I need to move to a more plant-based diet? Do I need to cut out the amounts of animal protein in my diet? Do I need to change my exercise program? Do I need to deal with other factors in my life that are contributing to stress? How can I I manage that with things like meditation or or yoga? So what are the factors that may be contributing to inflammation um, and then you know, how can we how can how can we reduce it? And I want to emphasise here that the things that make a difference are you know lifestyle factors. There are some supplements that may be helpful in inflammation, and some of them include things like curcumin um, or or, or omega three. However, my strong feeling is that unless the the lifestyle and dietary building blocks are, are in place supplements are just supplements. They're not going to deal with the majority of the problem.
3: And just on treatment, obviously, you've got a lot of tools in your in your armory, Jason, being a cardiologist. Can we talk about statins, though, and, and how often you might prescribe those and whether there are side effects involved with those?
2: Excellent question. and I think very topical at the moment because I think every week there's something that comes out about statins and statin-related side effects and their actual effectiveness. Where statins really make a difference is in someone who is at the high risk or has already had a clinical cardiovascular event. So someone who has already had a heart attack or needing a stent or had a stroke or has the presence of a significant burden of atherosclerosis with a high calcium score, a high burden of plaque. You know, significant plaque in the carotid arteries, this is where statins really provide benefit. And this is one of the strongest relationships ever in cardiovascular medicine. So someone's already had an event by prescribing a statin, trying to get down to a lower ldl you'll make a significant reduction in the risk of having a subsequent cardiovascular event. And I think it's it's not just about cholesterol lowering. Statins do have a role. their pleiotropic effect that's stabilizing plaque and perhaps a mild anti-inflammatory effect. When I people ask me about side effects, I think that some people do get statin-related side effects. Most common is muscle aches. Sometimes the use of ubiquinol uh, as a form of coenzyme Q10 can sometimes ameliorate those side effects. For the most people... The stasms-related muscle aches are dose-related, but for some people they can occur at lower doses. Some people do feel some some brain fog. It's been shown now recently by a team at St. Vincent's Hospital in in Sydney by Catherine Samaras that statins do not cause dementia or cognitive impairments. In actual fact, the most common contributor is vascular disease and statins treat vascular disease. In the people that have not had an event. So we're talking now in the primary prevention. There are a subgroup of people that will benefit from statins. These are people with higher burdens of coronary artery disease. So high calcium scores, often above 100, above, above 300, or people where lifestyle and dietary management of their lipids has not managed to bring it down to an appropriate preventative level, then I think it is worth a discussion. So I know statins can get a bad rap in the media and on on social media. And for many years, we'll probably, a lot of physicians and doctors were probably using them too liberally. We are now getting much clearer into which groups of people benefit from statins. And what I always tell patients by going on a, a statin, if appropriate, it doesn't negate the need to do to do lifestyle and dietary management of your risk factors because studies have shown that will only be complementary and better. Once again, you can't out-medicate or out-supplement poor lifestyle and dietary habits.
1: Well, statins are a little bit of a double-edged sword. Look, they definitely do have an effect. That's the first thing. I know there's some people who are almost saying that they're the number one evil in life and they don't <laughs> achieve anything. But with advanced coronary artery disease, they do appear to help. But I, my personal belief is that's primarily related to the anti-inflammatory effect mm-hmm. uh, of statins and not so much the cholesterol lowering effect because the, the same effect of statins has not been reduced. Been um, repeated with other cholesterol lowering medications, mm. uh, so they have a whole host of effects. They they're very anti-inflammatory. They even appear to assist with vitamin D levels. Amazingly, so there's mm. a there's a whole host of of effects there. And so the thing is that they then are somewhat detrimental to other tissues, particularly the muscle and neurological system, and mm-hmm. also the possibly the um, the blood sugar system as well. So you know this cases of people it's quite common that, that patients will become a bit more forgetful mm-hmm. uh, or their cognitive function will go down a little bit on statins and it's it's simply because you need the fats to line your, your neurons it's, it's mm-hmm. what makes up myelin and so on and so I believe it's as simple as that and 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 most likely the, the solution is to use lower doses and use them primarily as an anti-inflammatory rather than you know, so rather than kind of manically chasing an ideal LDL of 1.8 or something like that, my practice would be more normal to, to use a, a very low dose. And so in patients that I have that have advanced coronary artery disease, they generally would be on them. If they've then gone five years and they're improving, then I, my, my plan would be to get them off them eventually. And so it's, it's the, the biggest role is in that acute, more acute stage. Mm. After heart attacks, but they do have a they do have a sta- plaque stabilizing effect. Uh, it's not hundred percent clear how long the the, the effect you know, is beneficial for, but let's say a few years after a heart attack, for instance. I think certainly not for primary prevention, and certainly not at very high doses. So just to talk about the muscle part, so it's quite common to get myalgia or muscle pains on them, and a, and a small amount of people will get a life threatening condition called rhabdomyolysis. Where the actual muscle cells start breaking down, and 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 this has got to do with with the enzymes that the statins block, the HMG-CoA reductase, and so on. And so, I do think uh, monitoring CK levels is a good idea, and always and asking patients regularly about muscle pains. And I think one of the things that probably I object to the most is people are often put on them without being told of these risks, which can be quite significant. <laughs> I think it's very important to to inform people of these risks and, and allow them to make an informed decision about whether they want to be on them or not, rather than just railroading them onto okay, we're gonna get a bit of lepertory going on you. A tough <laughs> idea. So so yeah, they're a double-edged sword. They can be used in, in very severe and acute cases, but they're they they do not replace a holistic protocol.
3: You brought you up a really good point earlier about endothelial dysfunction and inflammation. So that that combination, can you talk me through endothelial dysfunction?
1: Endothelial dysfunction is very much related to a compound called nitric oxide. Uh, nitric oxide is very, very interesting. It, it's a compound that dilates the blood vessels or relaxes the blood vessels. So, if you've got enough uh, nitric oxide, you tend not to, to get high blood pressure so much, and you, you tend not to, if, if you're a male, you tend not to get erectile problems as much. Um, uh, so, and, and of course, then you tend not to get problems with ischemic heart disease. So, If nitric oxide is compromised, and that can be compromised by a whole host of factors, it can be related to methylation, it can be related to environmental toxins, it can be related to um, genetic polymorphisms. So if your nitric oxide is compromised, then the ability of the arteries to be able to maintain a healthy state is compromised, and the chance of them becoming inflamed is much higher.
3: And the endothelial layer, it's a metabolic, it has a metabolic functions.
1: Yeah, it's a metabolic tissue. You could say, yes, it is very important. And if your endothelial layer is not working well, basically your cardiovascular system is not working well. It's it's very, very linked to the overall function of the cardiovascular system. And so the nitric oxide piece is very important. Uh, the, the role of insulin is also very, very important. So mm-hmm you are developing insulin resistance, for whatever reason, I mean, the the most common is just simple dietary mistakes, uh, over-consuming sugar and so on. If you are developing insulin resistance, then basically that's another cause of inflammation of the endothelial lining of of the of the blood vessels so those kind of factors depleted nitric oxide and insulin resistance appear to be two of the strongest predictors as to whether you're going to get endothelial dysfunction and therefore you're at risk of developing inflammation of the endothelial lining which is what i believe and many other researchers believe is the initiation of ischemic heart disease
3: So when we were talking earlier about inflammation, obviously things like diet can be inflammatory. The fact that you're obese is inflammatory. If you've got insulin resistance, it's inflammatory. What are some other things that can contribute to the inflammation that can be detrimental to the development of atherosclerosis and ischemic heart disease?
1: Yeah. So if you're in a vitamin D deficient state, that's also considered to be an inflammatory state and it's often related to chronic inflammation and and there may be a shift towards 125 hydroxy vitamin D with lower 25 hydroxy vitamin D the story with vitamin D seems to be getting more and more complicated and deep but the sim- simple side of it is, you know, basically you want to get people's vitamin D well above the, the 100 nanomoles per litre mark, generally speaking. Often we're looking at the range 125 to 150 as being optimal nanomoles per litre. And you also want to look at giving them something for the vitamin D receptor if they've been shown to have vitamin D receptor polymorphisms, sulfur, such as the sulforaphane and so on. So you want to give it, but you also want to make sure that it's being received properly. So the vitamin D is very important. And you want to also think of the other fat-soluble vitamins at the same time. You want to consider giving K and, uh, and also looking at the vitamin A levels at the same time. So, um, yeah, it, and, and trying to get, get at least some of your vitamin D from sunlight is recommended because that gives you sulfated vitamin D, which appears to be the most beneficial. So the second one is is impaired methylation. So if if you have um, high homocysteine, homocysteine is also inflammatory to the cardiovascular system. So it, that can be related to what we call polymorphisms around methylation, and it also can just be related to toxicity. I found, and many people who have extremely high homocysteine, I found they they actually have mercury toxicity. And okay. So what's happening is that the environmental toxin is taking away or, or downgrading the methylation. So it's not always that the person's got a, a big gene um, mutation. Mm. And so I generally recommend looking at all the genes in concert and not just focusing on MTHFR. Mm. I do believe that's been overemphasized through the years. And I don't believe in this idea of check the MTHFR, then give folate Um I think that's very simplistic. So probably better testing is to looking, looking at a plasma methylation profile. And um, that would be quite beneficial in, in some cases, if you're looking at, at methylation being a problem. But the standard things would just be also testing B12, um, folic acid, and B6, and thinking about supplementing with those in the first instance, plus or minus TMG. They're all very helpful. plus or minus SAMe.
3: And some other, I guess, some other things that can contribute towards that inflammation too, obviously, leaky gut, infections, things like that.
1: Yes. Those two things are very important, I would agree. And the majority of unwell patients will have leaky gut, uh, also known as intestinal hyperpermeability. And it's really just related to, you know, all types of inflammation. Now, particularly if you've got localised gastrointestinal problems, so if you've got severe dysbiosis or infections, that's going to lead to, to leaky gut. If you've got a generalized inflammation problem, uh, whether it be related to um, environmental toxins um, or other causes, that will often cause leaky gut. So I would agree that's very important. And to think of that in any patient who is who is chronically unwell in some way. Chronic infections are also extremely important. And uh, I'm glad you brought that one up. I mean, there was quite a bit of interest at at looking at chlamydia pneumoniae infection and coronary heart disease um, a few years back, and it was found that there was an association between the two. Uh, However, the treatment wasn't found to be effective, particularly. Um, However... Um, sometimes the the problem has been that in these trials and so on, the treatment hasn't been given for long enough. And I actually suspect there is a causative role for infections such as chlamydia and mycoplasma infections. So you know if you do test for those and you find them to be positive, um, you can just do serology testing. And this, the, there is more advanced testing, such as LE spot testing available in, in certain labs um, overseas. And if you find that, that, especially if someone's had a history of pneumonia and also plus or minus chronic fatigue, it's, it's quite possible they've got a mycoplasma or chlamydia infection there. And by looking at then um, managing those with herbs and or antibiotics and or other strategies, I believe that can greatly help in reducing the inflammation in the cardiovascular system.
3: Many of the risk factors for ischemic heart disease are the same for vascular dementia and Alzheimer's disease. Dr Michael Osiki says it's so complex, yet so simple.
0: Obviously, without proper blood flow, you get organ tissue and cellular Failure. So, when we're sort of talking about cardiovascular disease, it's ultimately about something very, very chemical engineering. It's about (laughs) pipe flow and pumps. At the end of the day, um, elasticity of the blood vessels, and then just you know failures in the heart and all the fallout diseases from it, and causative issues that just affect the flow of blood throughout your body. So, vascular dementia is basically damage to the blood vessels from multiple issues that then result in some sort of neurodegenerative
2: outcome.
3: And that's a good way of, a, a, a kind of a simple way of understanding it, isn't it? And there are so many things that can cause that impact to blood flow. What are some of those?
0: So starting off with a blockage, so a stroke, and we could talk about many different ways that that could be just a clot, you know, much more well traditionally thinking and probably what a lot of it we the about in this podcast is, you know, a clot forming or atherosclerotic plaque. But another interesting one, you know, much more related to what we generally think about dementia and Alzheimer's, is there is um, the whole amyloidosis of the vasculature as well, because a lot of amyloid plaques are formed near blood vessels and um, associated with the blood brain barrier. And what could actually happen is these uh, plaques can deposit in the blood vessels themselves mm. and in, impede flow. Or, you know, because there's many different shapes and polymerization of the beta amyloid oligomers to even form bindles and could pierce right. the blood vessels, which sort of introduces the next sort of issue with blood flow is damage to the blood vessels mm. causing a bleed. So damage to the blood vessel and the blood vessel's breaking or, you know, the capillaries or, or, or um, micro, you know, uh, you know, breaking apart and um, causing a breed, putting pressure onto the brain tissue, causing damage that way um, and hypoxia downstream from that bleed. Um, a lot of the damage is related to mm. hypoxia basically, a lack of nutrients, a lack of oxygen going to the brain area where, you know, talking about clots earlier, you know, that's stopping it downstream of where that clot is happening, um, causing basically hypoxic events and an eventual cell death, you know, uh, swelling of the neuronal cells, loss of um, the uh, ionic gap, and so therefore you lose membrane potential so the neuron will stop working and eventually Mm. die off. And that's, not real I wouldn't say permanent, but it takes decades to repair that loss. And generally what ends up happening in the brain with new research is that it finds a different way of that damaged space. Um, I guess the final one that I talked about earlier is that that hypo event, so the low blood pressure side, you know, a lot of the other ones due to high blood pressure, you know, tachycardia and stuff. This is more about low blood pressure. Um causing, once again, hypoxia in the brain. And this is a little bit more nefarious and a little bit more more tracks the general progression of what you typically say uh, at Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or Lewy body dementia, which is a much more gradual decline, maybe a straight line, maybe parabolic, and declines, you know, worse later on. Whereas vascular dementia is very step rise. You have a big stroke, a big bleed. It has a massive step down in the um, in your cognitive function of wherever that clock happens to be. Most of the time in your cortex area, the top, you know, uh, brain. So generally you use that higher mm-hmm. cognitive function. But generally you sort of first sort of see um, more uh, like judgment and processing go first before mm-hmm. memory. In vascular dementia in a stepwise manner, where these hypo low blood flow events, um, which are a little bit more difficult, are kind of slow, like mm. there's small steps happening, which is a little, looks a little bit more like a, a gradual decline.
3: So, you're saying that someone who has Alzheimer's disease or developing Alzheimer's disease can be concurrently developing vascular dementia?
0: You look at the uh, risk factors uh, for cardiovascular disease and uh, Alzheimer's. Huge overlap. Uh, diabetes is the major one, but you know you look at Alzheimer's, and one of the few genetic risk factors is ApoE4, which is both involved in atherosclerosis mm-hmm. and in um, Alzheimer's because it's used for fat transport mostly in immune cells, and leads to fat deposits and fat buildup in the brain, and leads to the insulin resistance and immune dysfunction that we see in the brain with Alzheimer's situations. So there's a sort of huge overlap between the diseases just through risk factors mm-hmm. alone. But probably one of the, the big things when I like researching a, a lot of new topics or whatever is, I'll use an engineering term, you know, doing root cause analysis because, you know, we've spent close to a century now looking at beta-amyloid plaque and tau proteins multiple clinical trials trying to remove Mm -hmm. them, you know, decrease the function, whatever, doesn't work. And the question is kind of like going, well, as an engineer, as a biologist, like going, well, what's the normal function of like something like beta amyloid? What's the normal function of tau, which is the microtubule protein? So this uh, breakdown of Mm microtubules, and then thinking about, well, what will cause this to dysfunction? And what you quickly learn is something like beta amyloid almost it's a perfect example of hormesis in regards to low concentration has actually this big beneficial effect. Whereas high concentration has this massive detrimental effect, it starts aggregating uh these uh soluble oligomers are also quite toxic in itself. But if you go back and look at, you know, evolutionary biology, this beta amyloid is a highly conserved protein uh, or peptide in uh, vertebrates Mm -hmm. from hydro to us um, produces this protein. And because we discovered it's protein associated with a disease, so it's always got this sort of negative Mm -hmm. spin on it, you know, the Alzheimer's protein, that sort of thing is associated, you know, and it's always associated with causing Alzheimer's disease, opposed to going, why do do we have this protein? What is its function Mm And the function is at low at these low concentrations, neurogenitive, um, angiogenic, it helps vascular growth, helps maintain the blood brain barrier, um, helps, source, you know, it's a temporary plug. And then also some of the more interesting things when you sort of talk about some of the lower life forms, it's a chelator, and that's why a lot of heavy metals are associated with Alzheimer's disease, is it's chelating all these heavy metal ions that are causing oxidative stress and then aggregating around it. um, Viruses, um, HSV is widely associated with beta-amyloid plaques, Mm. bacteria as well. It's a stress response and and helps initiate the repair mechanism. The problem is overexpression leads to all these problems of it, you know, it is self-toxic, i.e. it's toxic because it's aggregating around other life forms, trying to kill it and defend Mm. the other life form. It's, you know, a defence mechanism for these single cells to helping support repair and it's and then when it aggregates together obviously it forms these big plaques that then get glycosylated and that's when it really slings and when it starts to bind to the tau protein that's when you really start kicking into like that alzheimer's thing but we see that in vascular dementia because that disruption to the blood brain barrier is actually a very key initiating event mm-hmm. for future progression to alzheimer's disease and we see this sort of yeah. overlap between the two diseases, which generally accelerates the mental decline if you have both a va- you know had, had a stroke as well as start showing um, signs of the Alzheimer's-based symptomology.
3: But at what point and what did cause the levels of, of the amyloid beta to increase and become detrimental? So that's when the risk factors come in.
0: Pretty much. And I guess a big event as well, you know, progression of disease states causing that inflammation or damage to the blood brain barrier, mm. causing that immune disruption, um, that activation of the glucagon synthase kinase 3, the GSK3, in um, its role in sort of that insulin sensitivity and decreasing that insulin sensitivity in the brain, in neuronal cells in itself. Causing sort of major issues. It's kind of like when we we're talking about cardiovascular disease, it's just basically hypoxia, yeah. poor blood flow. Yeah. It's the initiating cause, so that, you know, yeah. um, it, it, we see beta amyloid is produced in hypoxia and induces HIF 1 alpha. So at that low level, it starts producing to help, you know, protect the cell. It's a stress response. It looks to me like a stress protein. And it's actually quite a shame because there's not as much research on its actual biological role. You know, I'm reading Nature Review articles from 2020 and going, we actually don't know a lot about the <laughs> the biological role of yeah. uh, these proteins. Uh, I'm talking a lot about beta amyloid plaque, which, uh, you know, is probably I wouldn't really call the major... It's the snowballing factor. It's a big prognostic marker to yeah. separate from other ones. But... Yeah tau, which is your microtubule protein, is a big factor. But the reason why that's being broken down is because you're not having autophagy, Mm -hmm. which is, once again, a mitochondrial thing, which is, once again, an oxygenation (laughs) issue due to cardiovascular things. Mm -hmm. So when you start having these um, comorbid conditions or also start showing these other forms of dementia, Mm -hmm. it makes it a lot more trickier in terms of treatment because you need to understand, well, what's sort of the root causes? Is there a toxic Onslaught, be it chemical mm. or an infection, and do I need to clear that? There's obviously that big inflammatory, you know, side to everything, and then because of that, you have mitochondrial issues and mitochondrial mm. energy, and that metabolic and type three diabetes that we talk about, and then that leads to the microtubule problem. We don't see that microtubules being broken down, forming those spindles that are piercing the membranes and blood flow. Is so important because not only the blood oxygen supply, but also the lymph clearance, because mm-hmm. that's that, that washing of the cerebral spinal fluid, especially during sleep, is so very important. Mm-hmm. If you're not sleeping well, you're not getting that good clearance of the beta amyloid plaques and things like that, that then drives towards snowballing what's already going on.
3: I know as practitioners, we understand mitochondria and mitochondrial dysfunction, but do you think we overlook it particularly in cases like these?
0: Mm. I feel like a bit like a broken record uh, sometimes when Mm. I speak because I always sort of bring up like some sort of aspect of autophagy and mitochondria, but that's because it's so important because Mm. without autophagy, the cell goes into senescence and it's sort of a stress response for the cell to maintain some resemblance of its function and in the tissue but it starts going into the state of inflammation to try and say hey immune system clear me out i'm broken i don't have enough energy to apoptose because what ends up happening eventually that cell ends up necrosing, and that's bad you know you get all these necrosing factors released to the body and cause a further damage so it, it, i feel like a little bit of a broken record but it, it is it's always sort of back of your head because you look at the risk factors, uh, diabetes, mm. there's mitochondrial dysfunctions going on because of the the glucose and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I think it's a sort of fundamental thing. And it's not just CoQ10. Um, the carnitines and even the phospholipids themselves, the sort of like, um, you know, has a dual role and there is some clinical evidence around the carnitines. acetylal carnitine and carnitine itself. Having some positive effect of cognitive function in Alzheimer's patients as well, mm. as well as supporting that mitochondrial function, as well as some good evidence in that metabolic side, which is probably why it also helps the Alzheimer's patients, you know, to the the brain insulin resistance um, involved.
3: What would be your kind of go tos from the evidence as far as like supplementation and lifestyle are concerned?
0: Once again, the boring stuff, the omega 3s. Um, But it's really about the EPA. Even, I know studies have shown in Alzheimer's patients that they have low DHA. I'm at the opinion now that really it's about supplemental EPA. EPA goes to DHA. So it gives the body the opportunity to convert it over. There's all the studies in the Alzheimer's dementia space have been all high DHA and haven't shown a very strong effect. We've also seen that as well in other cognitive studies. DHA supplementation does not equal to cognitive improvement, even though it's so high in the brain. We see EPA having a beneficial effect. There's, There's not as many studies, but there are studies in Alzheimer's patients that show EPA supplementation has improved it in cognitive measures. Mm-hmm. And then also in general we've seen in you know elderly patient and general cognition cells, it's EPA. Same with cardiovascular health. You know, I guess the um ester based omega-3s, uh, I've got the drug name that they've called it. But once again, it's high dose EPA, you know, two, three, four grams of EPA almost, um, is the more important side and a lower DHA. I am yeah, just coming less and less convinced around supplemental DHA outside of mm. dietary sources. Because I know certain fish have higher DHA than EPA, but it's really about the EPA in terms of supplementation because of its anti inflammatory effect. And it's lower down in the cascade mm. when you think about the um, endocannabinoid systems, PPAR, the PPARs, and all fatty acid signaling. It's lower down. So it, I sort of follow this hypothesis of lower down. Is kind of yeah. better than the higher ups, you know, like directly supplementing. Mm. It comes a little bit more like a, a drug sort of scenario of you're getting this high input of something that's very much going to this pathway only, whereas something at high dose or something further up in the stream can work in multiple pathways and has a supportive effect. So EPA is quite good in that factor in both vascular health and in the dementia side. Citrulline more than arginine in terms of the nitric oxide story. Just sort of going even into the renal side a little bit, you know, if they've got renal damage as well, you know, low protein, 100% for somebody with low renal function is very, very necessary. Once you're on your dialysis, everything changes um, because you're getting stripped out every two days. But certain proteins are very much needed um, around it, especially the arginine, citrulline, tryptophan, histidine, Taurine, taurine, yeah, there we go. Taurine is fantastic because it's both blood pressure as well as heart rate reducing, mm-hmm. sort of can be broken down and metabolized like the homotaurine. Some interesting clinical trials of homotaurine high in um, a particular seaweed, I can't recall the particular species. Is high in homo but you also get some conversion in your gut flora, and taurine itself has some things because yeah. it's slightly gabinergic, It actually reacts with the um, GABA receptor. Yeah, there's some interesting clinical trials, especially on the ApoE4 positive or heterozygous, or even um, homozygous, mm. which is about twenty percent, I think, of Alzheimer's patients. Um, Ten to twenty percent of Alzheimer's patients have the APOE4 uh, gene defect. And it looks like in the phase three clinical trial a little while back, it was most effective in that. It wasn't universally effective, but there were subgroups where it was effective um, in it, um, homotaurine. Mm, yep. The taurine itself is also very, very interesting in cardiovascular health.
3: While Dr. Osiki recommends a Mediterranean diet, both Dr. Gupta and Dr. Kaplan mostly recommend a plant-based eating approach
2: now when we're talking about a dietary pattern to recommend to someone with ischemic heart disease or coronary atherosclerosis we have to think what is the available evidence not just in terms of reducing the risk factors that will lead up to the development of atherosclerosis so this includes a dietary pattern that will lower blood pressure that will lower atherogenic lipoproteins lower ldlc lower crp cause weight loss reduce the incidence of, reduce the chance of developing insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes. And for the most part, the dietary pattern that has shown over and over is a mostly plant-sensored Mediterranean-style diet. At the moment, and I know you've mentioned low-carbohydrate diet and the ketogenic diet, but as yet, they may improve some of those parameters, but they also have not been shown yet to translate to reduction in outcomes. So what we're interested in is we want to reduce the the risk factors or some of the available biomarkers, but also after following a dietary pattern, we want to make sure that five or 10 years down the track, that dietary pattern has been associated with the reduction in cardiovascular events. And... The only dietary patterns that have been shown to do that are, you know, the, the more you know, Mediterranean-style diets, mostly plant-based eating, and the, the ketogenic diets have yet to be able to do that. So, when someone comes in with established atherosclerosis, my suggestion is is for them to look at some of the work of um, Dean Ornish, who showed that people adopting mostly plant-based uh, vegetarian diet actually halted the progression of atherosclerosis, or some of the work of Dr. Michael Greger, who wrote a wonderful book called How Not to Die, and he's a very strong advocate for most, for almost exclusively plant-based diet. Um, These are the sort of dietary patterns that I recommend for for most. What the other really important thing is for the majority of patients, even getting 70 or 80% there is a significant improvement compared to where they were, where the majority of the population are. But for most people, mostly plant-based Mediterranean-style diet, with fish a few times a week is a healthy heart diet with plenty of, of healthy carbohydrates, whole you know whole grains, fruit, fruit and vegetables. What I find difficult about some form of low carbohydrate diet or the ketogenic diet is they actually exclude whole groups of foods that are known to be healthy and known to cause a reduction in cardiovascular events, such as fruits and vegetables and and legumes. When you look at you know, some of the world's longest living people. And there's a great book called The Blue Zones by Dan Buettner that looks at which populations are the highest um, octogenarians and people in their 90s, even people in their 100s, they all have diets high in legumes and whole grains.
3: Yeah, I've, I've read that book. It's I, it's I really enjoy it.
2: And none of those, those groups of people have a ketogenic or low-carbohydrate diet.
3: <laughs> no, and in fact, I found it interesting because they're, they're still they're having their even they're having white bread, but it's like locally made. They're drinking their one glass of wine at, at night sometimes, and they but but it's locally produced red wine. But you know they have a lot more exercise, and they don't have stress, and they have community. So there's a lot of um, that's, yep. that's
2: right. And the wine that they have, it's you know it's locally made. You know it's it's high in resveratrol, mm. uh, which is you know is, is, is in is in red wine, but it seems to be a much higher antioxidant level.
3: And I think the concept as well, Jason, of community and that social connection is a huge
2: is a Absol- huge thing. absolutely. They they eat together. They have multi-generational homes. They all people eat eat as families. Um, and I think that's so, so important. And in our busy, busy lives, Tony, it's not something we we tend to do all that often. <laughs>
3: In the next episode of Between Clinical Minds, we discuss kidney disease with Henry Oseki and renal specialist Dr. Patana from Thailand. Thank you for listening. We hope this podcast engaged and empowered you. And thank you to all of our experts. You can read more information on each of them on our website bioconceptsengage.com.au If you enjoyed this episode of Between Clinical Minds, please refer a friend and share the love. To continue the conversation, you can contact us at bioconceptsengage.com.au where community is more than a concept.